This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. Uh, well, my name is John Charbach, and I am a member of another Act 29 church here in town called Providence, and it's a great honor and a great joy to get to open and preach God's word with you this morning, uh, particularly because this is, a, this is a wonderful text that we get to go through this morning. It's one of the fullest accounts of the richness of the gospel in the New Testament, and in, in many ways... I feel unworthy to approach this text, and so let's ask God uh, for his help this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, we hope that you would anoint this time with your spirit, that you would use my ineffective words to bring your truth to life for us, um, that you would open our hearts to rejoice at your salvation, and you would stir our affections to love and to trust Jesus our great brother and king, that you would give us humility to hear your words and to obey and submit to you. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. Uh, our, cha- our text for today is Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 10. And we'll run all the way through the middle of Acts chapter 4, but we'll just do the first paragraph to start off with. Acts chapter 3 starting in verse 10. If you're using one of the blue Bibles from the back, it's page 531. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man, lame from birth, was being carried. Whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that's called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Uh, There's a woman, I don't know her very well, um, and we'll call her Dorothy, that's not her real name. Um, and, and Dorothy's story is that she, she used to have a very prestigious, well-paying job, um, I think in New York. And I'm not clear about the entire details, but somewhere along the line, uh, her marriage went bad and things began to spiral down from there. And uh, many years have passed since then, and Dorothy uh, now lives in Austin, and her life is very different. Um, she's She's destitute, she's homeless, she's severely alcoholic, she's physically disabled, she seems to be mentally unbalanced. And and one of the things that's particularly tragic about Dorothy's situation is that there are no shortage of people in her life who are desperately trying to help her. 
Uh, there's people who are offering her places to live and people who are even letting her live with them. And there's people who are connecting her to rehabilitation centers to help treat her alcoholism for free. There's people who are offering to help her navigate her disability. And there's churches that are welcoming, welcoming her into their fellowship. And, and what will happen is it, sh it seems that the pattern is she will accept help for a while and things will begin to improve, but then eventually she'll reject it. And my question is, is why? And I think the answer is, and, and I say this in part from my own personal experience, is that uh, Dorothy is spiritually sick, meaning that there's something inside of her that's sort of rotting her away from the inside out. Uh, that she prides herself on her self-sufficiency. She experiences great resentment towards those who help her. She often treats other people who are serving her as if serving her is their job, and she's extremely prone to self-pity. And so as a result, it's very hard to help her. And this spiritual sickness that she seems to have, which the Bible would label sin, is resulting in all these other mental and physical ailments. Um, and so my question is, what's the difference between Dorothy and us? And I think the answer is nothing. That Dorothy is simply an extreme example of what could happen to anyone with a cascade of bad breaks and poor decisions. But her condition is essentially the underlying condition of all of humanity, which is the fall. That we are glorious creatures gone tragically wrong. And there's this disease among hardwood trees, which is called heart rot. And it's a fungal infection. And what happens is a fungus begins to rot the tree away from the inside out. And it'll look okay on the outside, but it's losing its mass, it's losing its center, it's losing the thing that holds it together. And then eventually, you'll begin to see the consequences of that. The tree will collapse, the tree will begin to bend, the tree will stop bearing fruit. But by the time you notice that something is wrong, it's usually too late. And I think that is essentially our condition, that we are all suffering from a condition that those same hardwoods are suffering from, which is heart rot, that we are being rotted away from the inside out by our sin. And if that's our condition, then this text reveals God's provision, uh, that he restores us from the inside out. And he restores us from the inside out through the power of the gospel. Uh, he, he begins by uniting us spiritually to his son, Jesus Christ, the author of life, so that his life begins to flow through our veins. And as it does, this new life flows through us. We experience mental and physical and spiritual restoration. And sometimes that happens very quickly, like we see here in Acts chapter 3. And sometimes it happens more gradually through natural healing processes and doctors. And then sometimes, frankly, it only happens in the new heavens and the new earth. But it does happen. And that's the part of the claim of the gospel, is that not just us and our spiritual natures, but also our physical natures, and indeed all of creation will someday be renewed through the power of Christ Jesus, the King that the gospel proclaims. And so this sermon this morning will look, will dial in on the gospel, uh, that, that the idea that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and whomsoever believes in him will have eternal life in his name. And we'll walk through four areas. We'll look at the grounds of the gospel, the content of the gospel, the challenge of the gospel, and the blessings of the gospel. The grounds, the content, the challenge, and the blessings of the gospel. Let's start with the grounds of the gospel. Uh, so as we've already seen in this text, in the first 10 verses, 
there's this man who's help, asking for help with the symptoms that he's suffering from. He's experiencing extreme poverty because he can't work. Um, and instead of addressing the symptoms of giving him gold and silver, God works through the apostles to address the underlying condition of strengthening this man's ankle so he's able to walk. Um, and what I think is going on here is that this is sort of an acted out parable, that his healing pictures God's salvation. And I say that in part because of what verse 36 says, in verse 16, he says, Peter says, in his name, this is Jesus, and by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. Uh, essentially, what's happening is that, that, that we, just like us, this man, just like us, goes to God with help for the symptoms, whether in our case, maybe it's bad relationships, maybe it's uh, job struggles, maybe it's health issues. And rather than immediately treating the symptoms, God begins to work from the inside out of addressing the underlying problem, which is sin and death, just heart rot. And, and notice some things that are true about this man. First, this man does nothing to earn his salvation. All he has is need. Second, the man does nothing to accomplish his salvation. All he does is ask. And the third thing is that Peter puts no preconditions, no requirements on this man's salvation. He simply heals him. And what this is pointing us toward, I think, is that salvation is by grace through faith, apart from our works and apart from our merit. All we need to quote unquote do is believe in the Lord Jesus. And you, so, so you may be saying, okay, that sounds great, but uh, I don't really see that in the text. That sounds you know, like maybe you're interpolating too much, and maybe that's true. Uh, maybe this is not an acted out parable, but the things I have said are certainly true. Uh, and, and what I would point us to, just to make sure we're all working from the same foundation, is Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It talks about how the salvation is by grace through faith, apart from our works and apart from our merit. It says, Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire for the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in, in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. And so I think this text is illustrating that principle from Ephesians, that we're, we are no more able to save ourselves than a disabled person is to be able to spontaneously heal his own ankles and rise up or a dead person is able to spontaneously come back to life. That the grounds of the gospel is God's grace operating through faith, not through works. And so because that is true, because the grounds of the gospel is, is, is by grace through faith, we must therefore renounce our efforts to save ourselves. That, now, and, and I think that in, in most Protestant churches, it is very rare that you would find someone 
um, who's been there for any period of time who would explicitly say, I do not believe that salvation is by grace through faith or we are justified by anything but faith alone. And so explicit legalism you might, you might not find. But I think you might, but you, what you might find is what I would call a sort of soft legalism. And here's what soft legalism sounds like. Maybe soft legalism sounds like you're the spiritual superstar. You know, like you, you find yourself comparing yourself to other Christians a lot. Um, you sometimes feel like maybe you're more spiritual or more authentic or more committed than other Christians. Or maybe you find yourself drawn to passages that distinguish the true Christians from the false Christians. And for some reason, you always find yourself in the former, not the latter category. Or maybe, this, is, this was more like me, you find yourself as the spiritual doctor. Uh, you're the one who always wants to help other people, but does, never wants to be helped. And so people will ask me, how are you doing? I'll say, I'm, I'm good, how are you doing? Immediately turn the question back on them if we don't have to talk about myself. And, you know, maybe, maybe you lament other people's sins and you very seldom will mention your own sins. Or maybe you think that you're the most honest person in a small group, or you think there's something about you that means that the ordinary means of Christian grace that God has put in our lives through the church don't apply to us in the same way that they do to other Christians, that we're somehow outside of the system, and we don't need other people's help. Or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe soft legalism expresses itself as a guilty conscience, that we struggle to believe that God is pleased with us in Christ. And when bad things happen, our first inclination is to think that maybe God is displeased with our sin. Or we see our sin, and, we, and as a result, we doubt our salvation. And we, instead of taking our sin to Christ for healing and forgiveness. And so if, if some of those categories resonate with you, uh, they resonate with me, and I would say listen to these two truths. Uh, the first truth is that your soul has been purchased by the immeasurably valuable blood of God that you cannot add to its value. That we cannot, we, we, should, not, we should never insult Christ by trying to add tattered, filthy monopoly money to the price that he's already paid for our souls. That, that our good works contribute nothing to our salvation, and in fact, it suggests they do, it's blasphemous because it suggests that Christ died for no reason that we cannot earn our salvation any more than a dead person can earn their way back to life. Our only hope in life and in death is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The second truth is that your soul has been purchased by the immeasurably valuable blood of Christ. You cannot subtract from its value. So here's, here's the bad news. We are all sinners. Here's the good news, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners that Christ has paid our debt with his blood, and therefore Satan's accusations have no power over us anymore. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and we know that he who began a good work will see it through to completion. And I say this not as an excuse that we would go on sinning, but as a, that, that we would flee to Christ and that his presence and his grace would transform us from the inside out. And, and so that's the if the grounds of the gospel is that salvation is by grace through faith, then the application would be trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. Why? Because the only person who can earn his way back from the dead is the author of life himself. Which brings us to the next point, which is the content of the gospel. Look at verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, 
ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. So the people are all gathering together and they're marveling at this man's healing. And, and, and look what Peter says in response in verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though your own power or piety had made him walk? Our own power or piety had made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. So Peter's saying essentially, like, why are you surprised? Do you not know about God and the miracles that he does? Did you miss the fact that Jesus was all over Israel for the past three years proclaiming the kingdom of God has arrived? What is surprising about this to you? And then specifically from there, he, he diverts attention from himself, points the attention to God and Jesus, and then he dives into an explanation of the gospel. And he's going to highlight several things. The first thing he highlights is in verse 14 and 15. He says, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. It's a terrifying words to hear, I'm sure, that, that God became man to do what no one else in the Bible could do, which is to live the life that we're made to live and to lead his people out of slavery to sin, to Satan, and to death. And his people rejected him, and we killed him. And so death, what Isaiah calls this great shroud that is cast over all nations, or a veil that covers all people, it claimed one more victim. And so the God who breathed life into all of us lay there dead and breathless. And, and the thing about this is I was working through this passage today, and it occurred to me that he actually hadn't even been anointed with oil yet. That's what they're coming to do on Sunday morning with spices and ointments. He was just wrapped in linen as he was, bruised, battered, covered with spittle. And the kings of the earth, when they're entombed, they go into these vast mausoleums or great pyramids. But the king of heaven was hastily thrown into another man's grave. And then the sons of men just sort of went about their lives as if nothing had happened. This is another foolish Jewish rebel who dared to challenge Roman authority. Uh, there's another Jewish rebel who dared to challenge Roman authority, and he lived about 100 years after Jesus. His name was Simon ben Kosova, and he was a Messiah figure. He claimed to be a Messiah figure. People thought he was a Messiah figure. Many rabbis did. And he was a Jewish military leader. And so he went around, he gathered followers in the, in the third Jewish war, and he led a rebellion against Rome. And he won some victories, and he founded a very short-lived Jewish kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And after three years, the Romans did what the Romans do. They killed him. Killed him as a rebel. And so you can kind of hear the parallels here between Simon ben Kosovar, Kosova and Jesus. And so here's my question. Why is it that almost everyone on earth has heard of Jesus Christ and no one has heard of Simon ben Kosova? The answer is in verse 15, the second half. Whom God raised from the dead, to this we are witnesses. That the the reason that we have not heard of Simon ben Kosovo, but we have heard of Jesus, is because the shroud of death could not hold Jesus, the author of life. That God raised him from the dead. That by his death, 
Christ took away the sins of the world, and Satan was cast down like lightning from heaven, and his rebel kingdom was shaken to its very foundations because the accuser had nothing left to accuse us for. And then by his life, Christ trampled down death forever. The shroud of death was swallowed up in victory, and the veil was torn away. And so on Easter morning, our, our, our great king defeated our great enemies, sin, Satan, and death. And, and more than that, he says they are witnesses. And so Christianity is founded upon this apostolic testimony of these people who have seen the risen Christ. They have seen him with their eyes. They have heard him with their ears. They have touched him with their hands. So like Simon ben Kosova, Jesus died. But unlike Simon ben Kosova, Jesus came back to life. And over 500 people saw him, according to Paul. And so this leads to this great transformation among his disciples. We'll see a little later on in chapter 4, verse 13, that these, the, the chief priests knew these people were common and uneducated, and now they've become very bold and very articulate to the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter, who used to be, he used to be afraid to even acknowledge Jesus before a slave girl on Good Friday. He's now afraid not to acknowledge Jesus before the people that executed Jesus 60 days later. Something was very different because they had seen the risen Lord. And more than that, look at verse 21. Whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke from the mouth of his holy prophets. That Christ ascended to the right hand of his father and from there he sprinkles a people with his blood, releasing them from bondage to Satan and from bondage to sin. And he's prepared an everlasting house for us with him and with his father, and he's opened his heavenly treasury for us, and he's poured out spiritual blessings upon his people, the church. And now he lives and he reigns and he rules from his heavenly throne, directing his people and advancing his kingdom. And then finally, when all things are finished, he will return in power to finally judge evil and to restore all things, that there'll be no more death, there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more sin, there'll be no more sorrow, and there'll be no more illness. That Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ is reigning, and Christ will come again. And then finally in verse 19, you get the invitation. It says, Peter says, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And so Christ's invitation in the gospel is very simple. It's repent, or turn, literally, change your mind from trusting in yourself to trusting in Christ. And the result is that your sins will be blotted out. They will be removed. And so, in other words, the author of life gives life to whomever he wills, and he wills to give it to whomever believes in him. And then there's this, in verse 22 and 23, Peter said, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. And you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And so that should be our clue that this is not a warm and fuzzy message about God helping us live our best life now. But rather, the gospel comes with a very stark warning, which is that if Christ is coming again to finally judge and destroy evil, that is actually very terrifying news for us because we are evil. And we will not survive the judgment and no human being is holy in God's sight. 
And so we are made to be holy, but we have rebelled against him in big ways, but also in little ways. And so our only hope is a holiness outside of ourselves, what Luther would call an alien righteousness, the holiness of Jesus Christ, God's own righteousness. And so there is the fullness of the gospel in this text, that we see the death of Christ, we see the resurrection of Christ, the reigning of Christ, the return of Christ, the invitation to trust Christ, and the warning against rejecting Christ. That the king has arrived and he's offered salvation to all who will trust in him. And so we must make our choice. Do we trust in him or do we trust in someone or something else? Sort of as if we're, we're rebels on the eve of our execution and we've earned our spot there because we've been caught conspiring to commit treason against the one true king, the God of the universe, and yet Christ steps in and offers to take our place. And the question, only question is, do we accept it or do we say, I'm quite content where I am. I don't, I don't really need your help. And so my, my prayer would be, be that God would soften all of our hearts to see the glory of Christ and the goodness of Christ and to shine his love into our hearts. Um, and so if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, I would say just, just trust in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, that your sins will be blotted out. New life will begin to flow through your veins and your life will begin to change from the inside out. That you don't have to listen to the, uh, the lies of the evil one and who's offering you false hope and telling you that God's not trustworthy, that God loves you and God wants what's best for you. And the proof of it is this, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son whomsoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And moreover, that through him he is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. So if the king has come offering salvation, that has implications. Jesus is not simply, Jesus is our friend. We should be incredibly clear about that. But he is not simply our friend or a spirit in the sky, but a man who can rightfully command our allegiance. Which brings us to the next point, which is the challenge of the gospel. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, and they were speaking to the people and the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came to them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So the chief priests and their allies sort of get wind of Peter's preaching and they don't like it, so they call the apostles before the ruling council. And what's interesting is that they seem to, they seem to know that a, a miracle has occurred here but then they tried to deny it or to suppress it. They're like, who told you you could do this? They're, they're annoyed with the apostles. They've been teaching unlicensed doctrine and preaching without their authorization. And in verse 7, he says, the, 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 uh, they say, and, and, and when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power, by what name do you do this? They're sort of challenging them. Like, who, you know, like, you know, tell us, like, what's, what's going on here? And they notice Peter's very sharp response back to them. Peter challenges them, and he challenges them on three, along three axes. The first challenge is he challenges their authority as teachers. Look at verse 10 and 11. He says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This man is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. He says, you, Jesus is the stone rejected. Who, who authorized me to do this? The king authorized me to do this. You're supposed to be teachers of Israel. You're supposed to be these master builders. The most important stone showed up and you rejected it. You threw it in the trash like it didn't matter. Your God 
became king, and in your ignorance and in your pride, you murdered him. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're teaching. And then he also challenges their authority as priests in verse 12. He says, and there is no salvation, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That salvation is found in Jesus alone, and he's saying essentially that your priesthood, O priest, has no power to save Israel. And this, I think, follows very logically from the idea that Jesus is the king, that we can no more have salvation without the Savior than we can have the kingdom without the king. That we are not good enough to save ourselves, but yes, God has made provision for us through Christ. And so maybe you think, and I've, I've been here, and sometimes I think this myself, like, isn't this sort of exclusive? And I think the, I think the answer is that's, that's asking the wrong question. Like we talk about ex- exclusivity as if we are evaluating a human philosophy and its sufficiency and our opinion of what really matters. Like if I were to make up a religion, I wouldn't make up this one, is kind of what we're saying. But we actually don't think that way in almost any other arena of life. So for example, if you, if you were diagnosed with late stage terminal cancer and the doctor said your only hope is chemotherapy, you wouldn't complain that chemotherapy is too exclusive. That's not the right question to be asking. The question is, is the doctor's diagnosis correct? Right? Either we have it and we need the treatment or we don't, we don't need the treatment. Right? People may say, well, there's other treatments for that. Yeah, you can come in and you can give someone a big old shot of morphine to ease their pain and to lull them back into a, to sleep. And that will treat them in a certain manner of speaking, but it doesn't address the underlying condition. And so also it is with Christianity. It's either true or it is not. If it is true, if it is not true, then let us eat, drink, and be merry, as Paul says, because tomorrow we die. But if it really is true that it really is true that Christ is raised from the dead as a confirmation of authority, of his authority, then his opinions are the one that matters, and his truth is the one that matters, not ours. So the question is, and this is the question of all three synoptic gospels, actually the question of John too, is is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God? If so, that has dramatic implications for our lives. So Peter challenges their authority as teachers, as priests, and finally as leaders. Look at verse 19. He says, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. You can kind of hear the cheekiness of that response that like, they've told him to stop talking about Jesus the king, and he replies, well, if you think it's right that we would obey you guys instead of the king, then okay, but we're going to obey the king. It's as if they're out of the loop, that they're acting against God and they don't even realize it. And Peter and John are pointing that out. And, and so I think what's going on here is that the rulers are reacting this way because they are afraid of the gospel and they are afraid of the implications of the gospel. That if the gospel is true, then it challenges all other rivals. So that there are no rival teachers, there are no rival priests, and there are no rival kings. That if we want everlasting, if we want access to the everlasting kingdom, we have to accept the everlasting king. And so the temptation is, I think, to reject the gospel because we find it too challenging. That we suppress, like, like leaders, we might suppress the truth about the gospel because we don't want to grapple with all of its implications for our life. Um, there was a man in 1980, keeping the 80s illustrations running, there was a man in 1980 named Harry R. Truman. 
and Harry R. Truman had no relation and was not named after Harry S. Truman. But he lived in about a mile north of Mount St. Helena, or Mount St. Helens, which is an active volcano in Washington state. And it had been dormant for over 100 years, so, so Westerners hadn't really understood the full extent of what Mount St. Helens was all about. Um, and then in 1980s, in year 1980, geologists began, began to predict that following a series of earthquakes that the, the volcano was going to catastrophically erupt. And so they tried to evacuate the area, and, and, and what happened is that Truman refused to leave. Because he had been here all his life. He was, he was like a, I think, in the 60s, maybe. And he was convinced that he wasn't in any, any danger. And what he said, quote, um, this area is heavily timbered. Spirit Lake is, is in between me and the mountain, and the mountain is a mile away. The mountain ain't going to hurt me. His argument was like, I've lived through eruptions before, and so he thought that the ge geologists were incorrect. Um, plus, like, the mountain was like over a mile away. There's a lake. There's a bunch of heavily forested area between, like, and, and then just in case, to hedge his bets, he provisioned an abandoned mine shaft with food and liquor. It tells you the kind of person Harry Truman is. Uh, and, and so in some ways, you know, he sort of became a folk hero, and there's songs written about him and everything. Um, he's a quintessential American. He's brash. He's independent. He's skeptical of authority. He's self-reliant, and he's strongly opinionated. He didn't want to leave his home at Spirit Lake, uh, so he convinced himself that everything was going to be all right and he ignored the warnings from other people. And then to hedge his bets, he sort of made provision just in case. And then the volcano erupted, and it didn't erupt as he expected. Rather than sort of sh going straight up, what happened is the entire side of the mountain blew out. And the northern side of the mountain exploded with the equivalent of a large hydrogen bomb straight at Harry Truman. It incinerated the forest, it destroyed the lake, and it vaporized him. 220 miles an hour or faster, blasting through. He probably didn't even realize what was going on. He would be dead within less than a minute. And so it is with the gospel, that there's very good news, but it's also this great challenge to what is comfortable and, and to what is familiar. And it's a challenge to our own self-sufficiency. And so we put it off or we try to suppress it. We convince ourselves that maybe God's judgment won't come or some other thing like a forest or a lake will come between us and God's judgment or that we'll be able to withstand it. We, we'll will flee to our provisioned mine shaft, uh, or we, we'll be able to escape at the last minute. And none of those things are true. Um, that, and this is true, I think, even if we believe the gospel, even if we've already believed the gospel, we never really outgrow the challenge of the gospel, that it continues to push us at our pressure points. It continues to shape us and to conform us to the image of Christ. And so the question is, what pressure point is the gospel pushing on right now? And I would highlight two broad categories, which is false trust and false love. So false trust or hoping in something else besides Jesus Christ. And you, can, you finish this sentence, you would say, I am okay with God because of my dot, dot, dot. Finish the sentence. Maybe it's because of my holiness. But the Bible tells us that all our righteousness is like filthy rags. And our good works are so polluted by our sin and our selfishness that it's like in the Old Testament, offering up pig's blood on the altar, or human blood on the altar, or, or, or it, maybe we're trusting in our wisdom, but, but, but the Bible tells us that all our wisdom is a worldly foolishness to God. Um, that he who created it and sustains all things doesn't need our input, and doesn't, it, it's like a small child going to a quantum phys physicist trying to argue about like the nature of subatomic particles. 
or maybe we're trusting in our spirituality, that our spiritual efforts are like trying to perform CPR on someone who has been dead for over a week. They are futile apart from the life-giving power of Christ. So false trust or maybe false loves. Um, we're hoping in some worldly hope, and this, I think this is much more true of me, we're hoping in some worldly hope that will give us joy and lasting satisfaction. And we can figure it out by asking the question, I am afraid to lose dot, dot, dot. Or I would be happy if I could only get dot, dot, dot. So maybe it's status. I'm afraid to lose status. If I, if, if, if I you know, the, the gospel challenges me to go out into the world and to evangelize my neighbors, but people will mock me or reject me if they realize that I'm a Christian. Or maybe the gospel threatens my vision of the good life, that I'll miss out on worldly blessings like comfort or family or ease or money. Or maybe, I think this is, this is very true, especially among younger people like myself, that the gospel is a threat to our sex and our relationships. So we don't want to miss out on romantic attachment. That we'll be lonely, we'll be rejected, we'll never find a spouse. But what Jeremiah 2.13 says is that all of these false loves, all of these idols are like dry and empty wells. That they have no power to satisfy us because they can hold no water. We're just scratching away at the ground trying to get water out of them. And the tragedy of this situation is that right behind us, to turn back, is God, the fountain of living water, the true satisfier of our souls. And he has all this satisfaction in us, in him, and he offers to give it to us. And he says, why are, you, why are you scratching away at this empty well? I, the fountain of living water, am right here. And so in short, we should take those things, those false trusts and those false loves, and we should turn them over to God in prayer. We should acknowledge them to God and ask him to make Jesus so real and so beautiful to our hearts that we find true satisfaction, true happiness, and true joy in him. So, there's, so there's, there's, there's more to the gospel, however, beyond simply forgiveness and challenge. There's also great blessing and great promise. Which brings us to our last point, which is the blessing of the gospel, which is restoration through faith in Jesus. Uh, so observe the rich promises of the gospel back here in chapter 3. That the first is that we are legally forgiven. We've talked about this at length already in verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. The second is that we are spiritually sustained. Look at verse 20. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That we will be spiritually refreshed and renewed by Christ's presence. That's sort of the satisfaction that Jeremiah 2.13 is talking about, this fountain of living water. It's what our souls really long for. But... Um, Corey pointed out, as, as Augustine said, that our souls are restless until they find their rest in him. And then finally, that we will be physically restored. Good verse 21. Uh, Whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the prophets. So the Lord will someday come and restore all things. And when Christ returns, the fullness of the gospel will be realized. We'll see the complete undoing of the fall. Not just treating the symptoms, but actually solving the underlying problem, restoring the tree in full from the inside out. Uh, Revelation chapter 21, verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, but the former things have passed away. That that will be the full harvest of salvation. But But he also gives us first fruits now, sort of like when Joshua and Caleb go into the promised land and they bring back fruit to the Israelites. 
restoration. And the first fruits of, the, of, 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 of this new restoration in the, in the new heavens and the new earth is, is partial restoration here and now. That Paul says in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, past tense. The new has come, past tense. These are things that have already begun to occur. They're the first fruits of restoration here and now. We don't have to wait for the new heavens and the new earth for this. Uh, there's spiritual restoration through obedience. Look at verse 26. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you. How does he bless them? By turning every one of you from your wickedness. He blesses us by turning us from our wickedness. That I think once you see this pattern in the Bible, it's very hard to unsee it. That the part, of the part of the blessing of the gospel is obedience. That we're made to live a certain way. This is where true joy and satisfaction are found. And so one of the ways God blesses us is by helping us to live as we are designed. Um, that God has given us his precepts, not because he's not because he's arbitrary, not because he's a celestial dictator, but because he knows what is good for us and he wants us to walk in accordance with his ways. Therefore, our good. And then furthermore, God through his spirit enables us to live in obedience to them. And perfectly, yes, in fits and starts, yes. But live in them nonetheless. And the result is joy and blessing and satisfaction. And so we experience his presence more fully and our souls are satisfied more deeply, like drinking from a fountain of living water. But there's also physical restoration. Look at verse 16. And, by, and his name, by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, the faith that is through Jesus, has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. That God can and God will bring about physical healings in ways that frankly astonish and amaze us. But this comes with a very large caveat. And here's the caveat the Holy Spirit blows where he will. Meaning we can ask God for, we should ask God for restoration in faith. We should ask God for healing in faith. And then we should trust him to provide it in his timing according to his purposes and in the way that he desires to give it. But we cannot control the spirit of God any more than we can control the wind. And so we don't, and we, nor should we suppose that everything that happens is a special operation of the spirit. It might just be the ordinary operation of the spirit. Uh, and even in the Bible, the movement of the Spirit is rare, and it is remarkable, and it is notable. And when the Spirit moves in power, we will know. But God has also given us a special means for asking for healing, and that's the elders of the local church. So uh, in James chapter 5, verse 14, he says this. He says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church, and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And so the, uh, if, if any of you would like prayers for healing, for physical restoration, for mental restoration, for spiritual restoration, uh, there will be a time of intentional prayer following the sermon for personal restoration. And so let's, let's give thanks to God for the fullness of his grace and the fullness of his gospel towards us. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church Podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.